welcome to the ICC. I'm going to give a little, uh, little introduction here, but I want to welcome everybody to the International Code Council Region 1 Facebook page. Region 1 was established in 2014 and we're made up of three states, California, Hawaii, and Nevada. Uh, this also includes 32 ICC chapters, and we have an ICC chapter in the state of Hawaii. Uh, we are dedicated to the excellence in education and engagement to promote a safer environment by bringing code uh, officials together. Uh, this discussion forum was designed to highlight individuals and chapters that make up our region. Today we have Chief Todd and Chief, uh, I don't want to mispronounce your last name, is it Varis? It's Varis. Varis, sorry. I knew I was going to get that wrong. One, I, I had a 50-50 chance. Uh, with the Hawaii County Fire Department, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you have any questions for Chief Todd or Chief Varis, uh, please uh, feel free to add them in the comments. Uh, you can add those to our Facebook comment page. Uh, you know, I want to thank the, both of them for joining us today. And if you'd like to be a, a guest in an upcoming uh, forum or you know other people that may want to be a guest, please send a message and we'll make sure to reach out and contact them. So with that, welcome to both of you. Oh, thanks for uh, for having us. Uh, I you know before we even begin, I, I kind of like to ask, how's the weather in Hawaii today? Tough, real tough. The yeah, weather. it's it's difficult. It's uh, difficult. It's, and when I look out the window, it's we're it's suffering. Suffering in these blue, beautiful skies. Couple couple clouds. I got to reapply sunscreen. Yeah. <laughs> the most difficult part about the weather is um, when it's beautiful outside is when you're working and um, yes. when it's raining and storming is, is usually when you're off. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you know, much much like the rest of the world, we only have uh, two seasons, which is um, rainy or sunny. Um, I've heard of this mysterious thing called winter in, in yeah. other places. I've never seen it, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Now Speaking of winter, you and I have been, uh, you know, Chief Todd, you and I have been to the Fire Academy on a couple different occasions. Have you ever experienced uh, any winter in Emmitsburg, Maryland at the National Fire Academy? That's that's the question. I, I've been there for a very cold winter, and we actually got stranded on the side of the road in the bus on our way back to the airport for like an hour. Um, and uh, it was uh, not... and. Of course, it had to be a nor'easter where there was a bunch of snow and it took everybody like 24 hours to get home. So a question, have you ever had that experience? So uh, I actually, when I was doing my, my code prevention related stuff and, and in inspections, I, I had taken all the arson related courses with the exception of two at the National Fire Academy. And I saw them in a back to back, but it was in January. And I'm like, I can handle this, we'll, it'll, it'll work. And I, I went up there and by uh, Wednesday, with the weather reports coming in, there's, there was a general outcry within the class that we needed to end the class early, um, which was a surprise to me. But literally, campus ended up closing around noon on Thursday. And I sat there, because I got another class the next week, and literally watched my right. classmates flee, like literally throwing their suitcases, half-packed, clothes falling out of, out of the, the trunk, just slamming the trunk with the, the, the shorts flapping in the breeze as they sped out of campus to try and beat the, the cold front that was going to come in and dump. Uh, and it, it did. Uh, most of the guys never got anywhere. They made it to the airport and got stuck there. Uh, yeah, yet. And basically, there was about three feet of snow that dumped on the campus. Um, I, I personally, at one point, uh, thought I was going to die because uh, uh, when I started walking to the cafeteria, 
I realized if I didn't start running, I, I would freeze to death before I made it the three or four hundred feet, you know, down the road and around the corner, um, because my body's not built to to handle that kind of uh, extreme weather. But I, I so it, it was, do you have uh, any like winter clothing? Uh, do you have any winter clothing to speak of? No, no one in Hawaii has any winter clothing whatsoever. I just wore like three sets of slacks and you know all, all the underwear I personally own. I just kind of. I looked uh, about 20 pounds heavier because I just wore every layer I owned at the same time. Uh, yeah, that same weekend Chief was up there, I had a class when he left. So I came okay. the following week because I remember talking with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, same thing. I mean, we, we got it. He got the worst of it, but there was, I mean, for Hawaii guy, anything on the ground that's wet, that's major. Yeah. That's major, right? That's, that's significant. <laughs> anything on the ground that's white, that's significant already. So it was. Uh, I did the long johns. Did you do the long johns? I, I do have a set of long johns. Yeah. Um, they don't seem to help. I don't know what, what the deal with that is. But um, yeah, it, it, uh, worse yet, I was doing um, fire investigative stuff. We we're downrange. Uh, we're familiar with the campus inside these little concrete ten by tens, trying to dig out um, the, the evidence, which is now under a, a layer of you know half an inch of ice, and I'm just like. How do you, how do you how do you even figure out how the fire went? You have to wait until spring when it melts, and then you can investigate. You know what's going on over here? Yeah. 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 No, that's one of those things that you know. I definitely you know I can definitely sympathize and uh, you know draw on that experience as well. Um, so um, with that being said, yeah, you know, like as we mentioned, we you and I have been you know to the fire academy multiple occasions. Really. Uh, you know, taking classes. I think you and I have been to both, uh, you know, the two-week fire investigation class and then the interview and interrogation class, if I'm not mistaken, together. So, yeah. you know, so, so we both we both saw our, ourselves at the finest uh, during that two-week interview interrogation skill uh, class. Uh, that was a, that was a lot of fun. Uh, I, I wish we could do that again. So it, definitely, you know, when, when we talk about classes up at the National Fire Academy, the, the interview interrogation class was one of the best I've taken. The um, electrical arson class up there also is a, an amazing thing. Uh, the Dave Cusada, who was yep. there. Oh my God, that dude is, is great. Super, super knowledgeable. Um, definitely, I, I liked getting uh, grilled by the lawyers because it helped me prep for when I did get um, my expert testimony qualified. Uh, at a, a local case for a subrogation lawsuit. So definitely a, an excellent experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so speaking of weather, I think it's uh, hot and uh, we don't necessarily, it's probably, uh, at least I'll look at my uh, uh, little thermometer here. It says 94 here in cent Central Valley, California. So it's warm and a little hazy. We've got some smoke in the air. So speaking of smoke in the air, we've got the Dixie fire burning here in the state of California right now, along with multiple others. Uh, you, you, you guys also just recently had uh, one of the largest fires in Hawaii County. Can you maybe provide a little bit more information in regards to that fire and maybe the impact that it had uh, within your county? Yeah, so um, we just had approximately a 40,000 acre fire. I actually have one of my choppers in the air doing a, a circuit of the final um, outline of the fire so we can get a really good GPS uh, tracking and we can get a final count on acreage. But approximately 40,000 acres. Uh, it is the largest fire that we've ever had in Hawaii County, and, and I'm pretty sure the state of Hawaii. But you gotta understand, you know, generally the the fire can only go so far before it hits the ocean, so it's not mm -hmm. like there's a lot of uh, area for it to go to. 
That said, uh, to give you guys a comparison in size, 40,000 acres is about 10% of the size of Oahu. So um, on my island, you know, uh, it is a, it's not a small fire for us. Um, part of this fire was basically a, a result of being a, a wind-driven fire. So normally on Friday night when the fire first started, we had our dozers out there. It looked like we caught it. Uh, and then, you know, the following morning, you know, the wind started kicking up. The, the location of the fire is between two mountain ranges, and it's already a funnel for wind. But uh, by Saturday night, the uh, National Weather Service had been dropping warnings that said that, you know, we should expect uh, potentially gusts of 50 mile an hour plus uh, coming through the area. And depending on where you are in there, it, it'll exceed that by even, even uh, a larger margin. So every, every dozer break we made got blown through, uh, and it went from I guess 4,000 the first night to 14,000 to 30,000 acres and quickly was just um, growing rapidly quick. At one point, we had a seven-mile-wide flame front moving across and it ended up uh, covering approximately 62 and a half square miles of area for the total fire area. Uh, we had basically, part of the problem is we're on island, so it's not like we can drive in more resources or ask for additional help, but we pretty much called in every resource we have on the island uh, and then reached out to our you know our partners we have a permanent forestry and wildlife which is basically the state version of the national park service we also reached out to the national park service which is on the island and they sent we had um firefighters from maui flying over to assist uh, we had national guard resources black hawk helicopters to uh, our own helicopters of which you know our department has two and then we hired private helicopters um, and at the peak, around 27 dozers were running concurrently to try and uh, encircle the fire, which for our island, sound, it, it's crazy numbers, right? But I yeah. understand, you know, equivalent fires up in the, you know, continental United States where you have the resources you can bring in, they can have three, four, five times resources on scene. Uh, and that's normal. Over here, this is the, the largest thing we've ever seen. Um, luckily, most of the area is, is very light grasses, uh, scrub, um, maybe some small bushes. So it, it runs through quick and then it's done. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have you know, residual long-term fires. Um, and while we do have forests, they're on the eastern side of the island, which is the rainy side, so we generally don't run into issues. But it has been um, a very active season for us. Uh, last night, we had uh, our eighth brush fire uh, that kicked in just uh, the other night. So it has been, uh, and that's separate and, and, until, so the, the Mono Road, which was our 40,000 acre brush fire, was the sixth brush fire, and we're up to eight at the start of the season so far, um, wow. and varying amounts of acres from, you know, the smaller ones just running a couple hundred to the, the biggest one right now at, at 40,000 acres. So it's, it's, been a, it's been a very active season um, and, and kind of training the resources here locally. Well, it sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that being said, uh, do you guys do uh, prevention wise uh, any uh, wildland urban interface inspections? Do you have uh, I know that you are a uh, NFPA state, so to speak. You use the, utilize the NF NFPA code for a lot of enforcement. Are you a firewise community or um, do you utilize the ICC wildland urban interface code uh, to be able to help with some of those mitigation issues? So we, we haven't adopted, adopted the ICC Wildland Urban Interface Code. However, we do have a quite a different suit of I, ICC code that we have adopted as far as like building code, energy code, and others. Um, uh -huh. We are NFPA 1 as far as the fire code. 
why we did that on the state level. It's hard to say. It makes it a little bit complicated when restriction building the fire. We have to have a document that explains which one takes precedent and which. Yeah. Um, but um, we actually have uh, several uh, organizations on the island that are private, you know, 501c3s, um, one of which is the Hawaii Wildfire Management Organization. They've actually managed to manage things throughout the Pacific Rim. But okay. they're started on our island and are based on our island and do a lot of the help um, to push some of the community-driven uh, wildland-urban interface uh, stuff. So, like, right now, they're working with um, the... Uh, I guess, assessment of the burn area for potential runoff issues. Um, it's mm -hmm. a national park service that runs under brick, but it, it's basically not national land or federal land. So it, it's being just done uh, independently for our universities, got some people out there, and they're doing assessments through Hawaii Wildfire. But they also do um, kind of the mitigation through FireWise. So out of the yeah. state of Hawaii, there's 10 FireWise communities, eight are on our island. Oh, wow. Um, most of the firewise or the most of the wildland urban interfaces on our island where the the least um metro as far as uh you know or urban as far as the state goes um and the most spread out uh the big island county of uh, hawaii on the, on the big island is half of the land mass for the state uh but we are actually on the low end in terms of population so um we're, we're spread out very widely over the, the, the whole island. Um, so okay. it's about 4,000 square miles total and uh, 200,000 residents. So is that um, the population density, is that due to kind of the topography of the island or is, um, I guess I'm not as familiar, so are there other challenges that may lead to that? Um, it sounds like you're probably gonna have some of that population sp spread out throughout the area that may lead to challenges, especially with emergency response, you know, with the wildland fires and those types of things, so. Well, you know, I, I think as for the way it's situated or the way um, our island, you would say, operates, a lot of it has to do with infrastructure, right? Um, mm -hmm. We do have very large, um, more or less, um, what you would say, large areas of com or communities, large communities with mm -hmm. no water, no actual paved roads, right? A, a lot of these infrastructure is not there. So if you're talking about, you know, building strip malls, building this, building that, the infrastructure is not there to support it. So a lot of times, you know, we don't, you know, if, if you have a street of 10 houses and you want to run electricity, of course it becomes cheaper because we all split the cost. But if you got, you know, two houses, you know, in hundreds of acres, only got two houses where you're not going to get electricity, you're not going to get a road, you're not going to get water. But we, we experienced, I think, a lot of that. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, I, me and Chief Todd, you know, of course, we're super young. Look at us, right? So, you know, <laughs> a lot of this was put in before we were wearing these type of shirts and we were sitting in these seats. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's a lot. And, and it's some of the challenges that we deal with with planning, right? So decisions that planning had made maybe in the past, agricultural mm -hmm. areas that are not residential areas. Someone had a great idea. Um, meeting on the mines and they sat down and said, hey, you know what would be a great idea is to make subdivisions out in this nowhere place. Um, and then, you know, we, you know, developers probably talked to our local government and, you know, they had great ideas. And then, you know, some of that, um, you know, we kind of pay as a fire department, we're, we're kind of, we pay the, the price now, right? Because yeah. when we fires in these areas, there's no infrastructure, there's no this, there's no that. So, 
if you want to build a strip mall out in these rural areas, it's difficult, right? Because there's no infrastructure. So I think the infrastructure side of it does play a huge role because the cost to develop in these areas is not easy um, because there's not enough people there density-wise to split the cost. Yeah, so to give you like a little bit of background historically, the, the Big Island was uh, kind of paved uh, through agricultural and the sugarcane industries. And so lots of little towns spaced very, very far apart, mm -hmm. um, eventually grew into town centers, you know, but uh, because they're spaced so far apart, you know, a lot of money goes into just maintaining the road structure around the island so people can get uh, from one area to another. There's more infrastructure that goes in on our island than most counties have to deal with. There's more parks because everyone's spread out, you know. There's, there's more road maintenance that has to go in. When you stretch electrical lines, it's got to go farther. So there's just not enough money to go around. And, and so because of that, there's a variety of challenges that have come up because of just the historical way the island developed. Uh, this wasn't like we sat down 300 years ago and put together a really good planning yeah. code and tried to figure out how this was going to work, you know, 300 yep. years ago. It was more, you know, everything just naturally and organically grew. And then nowadays we're, we're sitting here going, you know, we have a subdivision down on the southern point of the island that's in type one lava zone, which means that if the, the mountain blows up, literally an hour later, there'll be lava coming through homes uh, that has limited electricity in some locations, no water, um, and it's 50 square miles of subdivision with, you know, thousands and thousands of residents uh, mm -hmm. nowhere with one fire station, one fire truck, one ambulance. So yeah. uh, it, is a, it is a fascinating challenge. Yeah, you know, and I, you, that was actually one of my questions that I was going to ask. Uh, you know, as as we as we talk about challenges within our given jurisdictions, uh, volcanic tourism related, uh, water access, all of those things. It sounds like you guys are are dealing with them. Uh, I would say probably the volcanic activity is probably the most unique that many of us uh, on the mainland don't necessarily experience. Uh, we have some seismic um, things. I'm sure you guys also, too, have some seismic issues that you have to be prepared for. Are there any other unique challenges? I mean, as, as we look at it, as you mentioned, you know, communities spread out, uh, access and, you know, dead-end access and water supplies. Are there um, no infrastructure put in place to be able to connect to hydrants? So how do you really mitigate those things? Um, one on the response side, but then two, maybe retroactive requirements to be able to improve those areas as well. So uh, definitely, you know, Hawaii County is unique. We're, I think, the number one county in the terms of the types of disasters that we can be affected by in this United States. Um, Hilo, the town we, you know, have our administration out of, is number one rainiest uh, city in the United States. Wow. Uh, so we're, we got a couple number ones. Uh, we're the only island where you can have uh, a blizzard, uh, a tsunami, an earthquake, uh, and lava on the same day. Um, it's entirely possible. Um, and um, we, back in 2018, lost 700 homes to, to lava. Um, yeah, I spent way, way, way too much time working the EOC um, during the nine months or something like that that we were activated uh it is not much fun i tell you um yeah yeah it, it's because unlike a tsunami or hurricane or stuff like that you know you're going to have your response and then you're going to deal with the issue and then you're going to clean up and then at some point you can stop but with lava lava works on geological time a, right. a volcano is active for 20 years in a row mm -hmm. 
you know, um, and as long as there's potentially houses in the way or things like that, you got to be running a 24-7 operation to keep an eye on things. And, and there's been a lot of difficulties with that because our, our mayor had said, hey, if there's people that have homes and the homes haven't been covered by lava, they should be allowed to go back to their homes. Um, we don't know where the lava's going to go next. And so yeah. we're constantly having to monitor the lava. And then as soon as it blew up, and then we had one particular incident where uh, residents ended up getting trapped between you know, the flow and then a new offshoot that cut off their community. And, you know, I was working at EOC that day and we're trying to coordinate with choppers and people calling 911 and, and where they, where to pick them up off the road so that we can evacuate them because there's no exit anymore because they're now inside uh, what we call a puka, a hole between basically two lava flows. And, and there's, you know, I don't know, maybe 20 residents at the time that were stuck inside there and we had to chopper lift everyone out as their homes, you know, basically get covered. And when you think of lava, it, it, you're thinking, oh, there's this, you know, creeping red stuff on the ground. But, you know, you don't realize, like, um, that creeping stuff on the ground can be 50 feet tall. It's literally a, a wall um, that just starts coming down. And nothing, there's no, there's no stopping it. There's nothing you can do. Um, there's no dynamite in the world that's going to change the course or anything like that. So how do you plan for something like that? Then? I mean, in a sense of... If you're doing emergency planning and trying to develop an emergency operations plan, should those things happen, how do you really plan for something that that's un unpredictable? That uh, you, you know, as as you mentioned, it moves on geological time. So how do you really even plan for something like that to be able to ensure you can get people out safely? You know, I'd like to say that you you can have a plan, but we don't know where the love's going to come out next. You know, um, we, we can't tell you when it's going to come out, how long it's going to last, what direction it's going to flow in. We have a lot of topography maps, so we, we can kind of see where it's most likely to go. But um, it doesn't come up in only one spot, and then you figure out, oh, where's the, the low, end, low land area mm -hmm. that will travel. It'll pop right. up eight, nine, ten different locations, and every one of them is going to go in a different direction. And, um, yeah, uh, it is... It's something that's difficult. Yeah, I mean, you know, as Chief Todd said, I mean, where where he's describing, we're we're building strip malls now, right? This this wasn't you know a hundred years ago. We started quickly, you know, building again. So it's and again, that's not you know we don't make those decisions, right? Someone um, in our government allows that building to occur. So I think we just as a team got to be ready to. Yeah, and we're kind of dealing a lot with that in California in the sense of uh, building wildland urban areas and trying to figure out um, should those things go um, where they're, you know, potentially going to be impacted by, a, a, uh, you know, a wildland fire. Um, we're, we're currently reviewing our Title 14 regulations that um, are separate from, you know, uh, from our enforcement of the code. And so in that, we we involve a lot more planners and those types of things to be able to help identify some of those locations. And as fire code officials, obviously, we try to do what we can to be able to maybe urge them to uh, look at some of these you know, points of access and water supply issues and, and those things. And it sounds like you guys are trying to do the same thing. Um, it, a lot of times the, you, you know, code enforcement's the sum of many parts. And so, you know, hopefully you can get more people on board. So I guess that leads me into another question is, how do you guys work on build? Oh, sorry, Chief, you you were going to say something? Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to throw out something interesting. When we talk about design, and, and one of the things that's always kind of mystified me about the America on a whole, we let these people build homes, um, but we haven't really changed 
codes. Like we've gotten rid of fake single for the most part now, um, but we continue to let people build regular homes out in the middle of these wildland urban interfaces. Um, and um, I'm a huge fan of architecture and design and, and also code development and stuff like that. But one of the things that fascinates me is I, I often go up to Japan and, and one of the things I've always wondered is why, why am I not following some of the countries out there that are doing a better job? Uh, Japan is a super urban interface. They've run through huge conflagrations in the past. They've run into problems with earthquakes and whatever. Uh, and so they have some of the most stringent codes in the world. And obviously, California has had that makes things really expensive sometimes. But for whatever reason, uh, the houses in Japan are not particularly expensive comparative to, you know, Hawaii. Cause I, I asked, you know, while I'm up there, well, how much would it cost to build a house like that? But one of the things that blew my mind is like one of the companies that I've been up and I went and inspected their homes and things like that designs a home that is sitting four to 12 inches away from your neighbor's house because that's how close houses are in Japan. They're like, I'm like, you got to get between those. You're going to need a really skinny guy to go and fix whatever's in there. He's going to, he's going to be like, yeah, you know, <laughs> like, who is that guy? Because that is a lot of, that is difficult work and maybe some claustrophobia issues, right? But, um, you know, we're, we're up there, we're checking out these homes, and home is designed to let your neighbor's house burn for two hours next to it and be fine. Uh, they, they, they have an exterior aerated concrete type of um, tile system that has a uh, design for 2,000 degree flames for two hours to resist heat from transitioning into the structure. They're built with C-channel I-beam or I-beam type um, steel Structure, it's about four inches or so. Um, designed to withstand a 6.5 Richter scale earthquake directly below the home. With your neighbor's house falling on your home, it's entirely fine. They're built with actually weight systems inside the walls, counterweight. Uh, literally, like, like they have the you know the cross section of the wall. You can see, and there's just basically a weight system that is designed to pendulum swing, counter wow. earth movement, uh, and maintain the house stability during the middle of an earthquake. They can build your house in a single day. Like literally, they build them in factories, they truck them out. Uh, as long as the concrete has time to cure, they drop the house. The house, three-story house, can go up in one day uh, wow. and uh, withstand hurricane, tsunami, earthquake, and your neighbor's house is burning all around. Like we're talking five homes in a sea around your house, all burned down to the ground. And, uh, and so when I look at Japan and the technology that already been created and is being used. I gotta wonder why America, you know, is, is so far behind the curve, you know, because it's not like this is rocket science. Old people are doing things that are impressive and would potentially save lives, save infrastructure, save homes, and allow to build more in the wildland and things like that. But we're not doing it. It's kind of interesting. So I, I guess that would be a question that I would have is. Uh, how do you guys engage in code development? You know, seeing those things, because you guys are really on the leading edge of, of the country in the sense of you're kind of the bridge between us and, and the, you know, the Asian rim or the Pacific Asian rim kind of area. So how do you, you know, involve, get involved in code enforcement and maybe shape the codes to include some of those technologies? Uh, we're not including any of those technologies. <laughs> so we're, we're still running with all the American codes here. It's more of just a, a factor of going over and saying, hey, there is something better out there. Why aren't we adopting it? You know, but as of so far, even even locally, um, we're we're just trying to keep up with our local code cycles. 
Yeah. And I think, again, we, you know, I think we are uh, in the process of adopting a new uh, barcode, uh, NSK1. Um, but we are, you know, I, I think the big thing, as we discussed earlier, is, is looking at the experiences that we have now, right? Mm -hmm. You know, lack of, we have huge hotels with no access, right? We have, you know, medical call. We have an extrication time, you know, 15, 20 minutes besides our response time. I mean, it's right. a Right. Um, so, and why, why is it like that? Well, you know, it's because whether it be um, lack of um, knowledge at the time from prevention, or is it lack of um, enforcement, you know, mm -hmm. different reasons, again, we weren't in these seats, but now moving forward, how do we not have that again? How does right. our, our department succeed 30 years from now? How do they not have these issues where you have a typical, um, you know, single-family dwelling, and we have our resource staying there all mm -hmm. night fighting this fire because there's no water because we're running a water shuttle operation. So I think our code now we're trying to get to a point where we don't experience that again. Where uh, we hope that you know the guys that when we're gone, when I'm gone and out of here, they say, "Wow, we thank you know we thank Chief Todd and, and those guys for doing a good job and, and getting us tools to succeed." Right? And then we just want to make sure that we give our guys to succeed. So I think on a smaller scale, baby steps, you know, hopefully one day we can, uh, you know, get more advanced. But, we'll, you know, first of all, get to a point where we can even get to where we got to get to to do our job. Right? Let's, right. let's do that first. So I, I think that's been a lot of our focus and making sure, you know, our personnel that are doing this, our pre prevention personnel, are looking at these things and we're making sure that we're implementing it all in our newer projects. So then how do you guys build partnerships with like your planning departments and building departments to maybe avoid those things from occurring in the future? I know that uh, we I work real closely with a lot of my building departments and planning departments. It's really like I, I mentioned before, the sum of many parts. So how do you guys really make that, build those relationships and, and that collaborative effort to avoid uh, maybe uh, hotels, large uh, multi-story hotels going in with no access, water supply, and those types of things? Well, I, I guess the first thing is they're, they're not building any new hotels. So that, you know, it's it's more, you know, trying to deal with the existing ones that when they built, didn't consider fire access roads, didn't consider a lot of things, you know. Um, and, and generally, I, I guess it comes back to the relationships. We, we, we do have, you know, annual conferences here, you know, Hawaii, Tech uh, uh, where we'll, we'll go out and we'll meet uh, professionals from other islands as well. But we have a pretty good working relationship yeah. with our, our local planning department, our local building department, and all the other people that do plan review. Um, we were doing joint plan review down in a plan review room where you just see all the other departments. Uh, however, okay. we're, we're switching to an EPIC system that allows us to do digital plan review, and that way the single set of plans isn't being you know, held up because one person is working on it and no one else can look at it while they're working on it. So we'll be able to do right. concurrent review and hopefully speed up the planning review process here locally. Um, I, you know, I guess it's nice and all to, to talk about working with others, but it's mostly, you, know, you got to get up, you got to go walk next door and, and you got to yeah. build that relationship. Um, and, you know, once they understand where we come from and we understand where they're coming from, we can, we can have those meetings to represent each other's views and, and move forward to achieve a better holistic picture for the safety of the community, but it still allow for things to get built and, and for progress to move forward and, and the economy to grow. Okay. Like, well, uh, yeah. Go, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. 
like the chief said, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, working in prevention, I feel very fortunate, actually, that we have um, such a good relationship with um, our other partners, whether it be from building to liquor department to planning, I mean, you know, all of these different, you know, a lot of their um, permitting processes, we're involved with those. Um, and what have we found to be very effective, I think, as a fire department, we approach a lot of these challenges with um, leadership, right? And, and, mm -hmm. and we, we see the issue. Now, this is not a problem I'm going to drop on your desk, but let's go together and let's let's resolve this. And I think, the, you know, whether it be building or planning or whoever it is, when we're approaching it like that, we get a great response, right? They, they don't feel like we're passing on work. But you right. know, we're part of the solution, right? And I think they're joining the team, right? We're on the team. It's not a this is your thing, then you take care of this. Right. It doesn't go well. But so we're very fortunate. I feel very fortunate to have um, great partners in the county. You know, no, I, I think awesome. there might be a benefit that you know we're stuck on an island. Um, we know there's no one else out there to, to deal with stuff, and then we we gotta we gotta figure it out. And so the the state yeah. agencies, the federal agencies, the county. Um, we actually work together very well for the most part, you know, and I think there, there's something to be said for being stuck on the island with everyone else. It's just kind of like, it's like, well, that'll work, so we got to figure it out. Yeah. Yep. Well, and you mentioned uh, moving to electronic plan review and electronic permitting, uh, electronic permitting system. I know a lot of agencies have moved to that, especially in response to COVID-19 and, and, you know, being shut down and trying to be able to maintain those um, at least those workflows, especially with many of us working remotely. I'm working remotely today because uh, of a COVID exposure uh, earlier this week. So, um, it, you know, just trying, you know, being able to still kind of facilitate the work that you still have to do, but also meeting the needs of, of customers. So in addition to that electronic permitting system and electronic uh, plan reviews, what additional technology features have you guys implemented to address, um, you know, some of those challenges with COVID-19? Um, so I know for our, our office, um, one thing that we've gotten, you know, our island is so big. So we have a East Hawaii and West Hawaii. So if we want to have a meeting or something like that before, we would have to drive at least two hours um, to get to the other side and have the meeting and then drive to our back. So, that would kind of encompass the whole day. So one technology right. is, of course, this um, mm -hmm. Zoom. We've been we've been taking advantage of that, and that's kind of for me in, in our department, the Prevention Bureau has really brought us more together because it's more of an opportunity to meet. There's no excuse, right? It's easy to right. jump on early in the morning uh, and do that. Um, it, it's also, I think, for us in prevention, COVID has actually given us a chance to be. Um, good guys and i say that because we're always i mean we're firefighters at heart right we help people and, and right. it's, it's a change right to go out and tell people you gotta fix this fix that but during covid you know we kind of switched our focus to more um assisting the community and keeping them safe we always do that but this was more it became more educational um everything right. was educational because everybody got shut down Nobody was open, so when they did open, we we're trying to assist them on how they could open, um, helping them with the governance requirements, mask wearing, social distancing, how we're going to do that, how we're going to implement them opening. So I, you almost felt a sense of, you know, we were out there again just assisting people. 
Uh, and then when they're already open, you know, where's their fire protection systems up and running? Was all of the stuff working? So I think that was a great opportunity um, to, to, like I said, to feel that that kind of assistance in the community. And, and then our public ed, you know, we had great programs that we used to do that involved meeting with people, right? Smoke right. alarm programs, going in elderly halls, and we weren't doing that anymore. So I think the the, um, the pandemic is us different avenues of public ed. We did a um, educational videos and things like that, long lasting, uh, mm -hmm. much more people. Um, so I think, you know, the pandemic, although challenging, has taught us a lot, I know, for prevention. You know. Yeah, you know, even on the state level, uh, there's certain rules called the Sunshine Law here in Hawaii, um, which basically requires that any meeting of politicians or other things more than, than two of them at a time requires like public notice so people can come and stare at them to make sure they're not doing anything <laughs> sorry. Um, right. But it also applies to any commissions or meetings or anything like that. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it, it's been a, where does it sound? It's kind of a boon because a lot of our meetings used to be like, we'd have to fly to another island, right? So you're waking up at 4 or 5 a.m. to make it to the flight, to be at the airport for an hour, to fly to Honolulu, to fight traffic for an hour, to arrive at a meeting and hang out there for two, two and a half hours and then repeat the process and come home at five or six in the evening. Uh, and that's your whole day, right? Just yeah. to attend the meeting. But the requirement in the past have been, you know, everything has to be in person and everyone is open to public and things like that. And so the governor had um, suspended some of the rulings and allowed for remote meetings. And I think uh, after his latest proclamation, we are, we're not gonna go back. So it'll allow us as a whole within our agencies within our politicians and our committees to meet virtually and allow people to join uh, as long as we're you know using the newer technology so it, it's forced some changes in how we do business uh, and how we look at things but it's just kind of a benefit it's a lot easier for it you know to close the door of my office and sit in for a two-hour meeting than it would have been to lose my entire day to fly off for a meeting you know which right. may or even may not have even been all that important of a meeting that day right so yeah. Uh, definitely a time saver and, and some progress is finally coming forward that legally has been a little difficult to do uh, yeah. in the past. So I, I do like the, some of the outcomes, even though there's other problems that have obviously come with COVID-19. Yeah, and you know, you talk about virtual meetings. I like I'm I've never been to Hawaii, so this at least gives me a chance to visit with you two. Um, you know, through this virtual meeting platform. So uh, someday I do wish to go. Um, uh, I keep saying, I keep telling my wife that we're going to go, but we just haven't quite made it out there yet. So she's probably going to watch this and she's going to hold me to it. Uh, uh, but one of these days, and maybe when COVID starts to wane a bit more, maybe we can start examining that. I had a friend that uh, flew out there right at the very beginning of the pandemic and uh, he ended up contracting COVID in the midst of travel. So, he, it, so I'm going to try to I'm gonna use that as my excuse to not necessarily book my flights right now um, oh. and then maybe soon. But you're right. Virtual meetings are, I mean, it allows me to go to city council meetings late at night, especially when they run, you know, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. I can do it from, you know, I can do it from my home and still be informed on what is going on. Uh, and then also, too, I, I know that for our, uh, so we're a joint powers authority, and being a joint powers authority, we have two member agencies. We have a rural fire district and a city, and through that, we're able to broadcast our meetings uh, through a platform called GoToMeeting, and it allows us to be able to engage more. And, and with this meeting, I'm able to stream it through Facebook. 
Um, we're, we're on a different platform. So there are a lot of different things. That I know a lot of other jurisdictions have also engaged in uh, uh, virtual inspections. I have not necessarily tried it, but I do have some staff that we're, we're looking at potentially doing that for some of the smaller, the uh, uh, maybe minor fire code violations to be able to verify compliance. I, I think that that might also, as, as you mentioned, the two hour uh, drive maybe to other parts of the island, maybe a virtual inspection uh, through FaceTime or uh, Google Duo or something like that might help uh, at least verify compliance. And, and it, they're all trade-offs, right? Um, you can't actually put eyes on it. And so those are some of those things that definitely lead to challenges. So uh, I can definitely, uh, I can agree with you on all, on all those fronts. So, but, um, well, I really appreciate your time. I know you guys have to go here very shortly. So, but I want to, I want to close with a question. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I've had these things uh, throughout my career, but, we all take different paths throughout our career. Um, can you think of any notable experiences that have shaped your perspective on code enforcement? Um, either, um, I, I talked with Robert Marshall from San Mateo Consolidated uh, Fire, uh, Fire Department a couple weeks ago, and he talks about the, you know, some large scale fires that he had been on that really helped shape his um, uh, thoughts and, uh, and uh, code enforcement perspective, especially as it relates back to single family dwellings. So, is there anything that you guys can think of that may have shaped your um, your your belief or not belief, but maybe your perspective on code enforcement? You know, um, personally, I, I uh, think the, the study of code enforcement, you know, as far as fire code enforcement and everything else, to, to start with historical fires in America, you know, Triangle Shirtwaist Factory, Iroquois, mm -hmm. you know, um, Station Nightclub, I, you know, um, I, I was in prevention before I became the fire chief, uh, before I became a battalion chief back in my earlier career. And Kyle had been one of the guys who came in. And so one of the things I'd always, you know, taught them was, you know, why did we change the code? A lot of these, you know, things get put in. And let's be honest, you know, most of the code is built on the concept of this this rule is in there to stop people from dying. You know, like we, we didn't, they didn't put rules in there just to make rules. Most of these things were, you know, like these people died in this particular incident, what kind of a procedure, a policy, a, a rule that could we make that would prevent that from happening in the future, you know? The, the, the entire code's like that, but, you know, being able to study the historical events and, and look at that and then figure out, you know, oh, this is why we changed it so exit doors have to open in the way of travel. You know, this is why we say you can't block an exit. This is why a fire extinguisher needs to be, you know, every 50 feet in these kind of facilities or, this is why you need a sprinkler system. Um, convincing, you know, residents, you know, residential people and, and code, uh, you know, builders and things like that, that, you know, we should put residential sprinklers is something we haven't been able to get the, the local people to adopt quite yet. Uh, but definitely something we're, we're shooting for in the, in the long run, right? Um, and, and definitely, you know, I gotta say, you know, the National Fire Academy has been a big thing for my, you know, development in terms of where I wanna go and what I was where I wanted to achieve within our department. Uh, I've been up for 13 courses up there, uh, and it's been the, the connections I've made with guys like yourself and having yeah. those conversations, maybe not so much in the class, because the class could have been for something like for fire investigation, but you know, talking with guys about how their jurisdictions are dealing with things, making those connections, and being able to shoot out emails and saying, hey, you know, um, what are you guys doing about that? The International Association of Fire Chiefs, which I belong to, um, 
I'm, I'm kind of active on the forums, and so when I run into an issue with the you know, like, hey, what are your jurisdictions doing about GIS tracking, or, you know, what, how do you do with mapping, or how do you track bulldozers, or, you know, whatever it is, you know, you can easily shoot a question, and you'll get a bunch of people replying back to you about, like, hey, we're using this product, or we're using this solution, and um, so I gotta say, you know, the biggest influence in my career has been the people I work with, you know, the guys I, I meet, like yourself at the National Fire Academy, and being able to pull those people for their opinions and what are their jurisdictions doing and sharing that information. And if you, you know, work in a silo by yourself, all you're going to see is, is metal walls and that's your world. You know, you, you need to get out of the well, you need to go talk with the guys around you. You got to make those connections. And the National Fire Academy is a great way to do it. And there's also some associations out there NFPA, ICC. Um, you know, IAFC and things like that, that, you know, be, be a member, you know, get out there and, and start participating. And that will, that will shape where you want to go and what you want to achieve because you'll be able to see how it affects other places besides yourself. Learn from others, so to speak, right? <laughs> right. And, and Kyle, you, I... I don't know how to go after that beautiful... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I should have let you go first. Yeah, my, I should open for the, the closer. Um, you know, I think for me, you know, it's it's crappy situations. I, I hate to say it that way, but it's those times when, um, you know, as a firefighter, um, going to a fire and, you know, mm -hmm. wondering, like, why why are we here all night? What What's going on? Why are we doing this water? Why am I filling up at this? You know, why do I have to go two miles to get water? You know, what, what, why am I doing this? And then from there, my transition to coming into prevention and then being on the investig in the on the technical side, investigation side, and mm -hmm. looking at, you know what, there's places that it's not like this, right? There, right. there is, um, this is not, you know, as a farmer, you just kind of go like, man, this is how, why is it always fully involved? Why is it always a big black square? Why are we not saving these things, right? And then going in, coming into fire, the fire investigation side and the cold side, you realize, well, it's because we got no access, we got no water. This thing is not unpermitted. We got no drywall in there. Single, I mean, just on and on and on, right? So right. that really made me feel. And then getting to know the next level from there is getting into plan review and realizing that, oh my gosh, we have an opportunity to actually change this going forward. You know, I, mm -hmm. I can expect to get better outcomes. So firefighters can, like I always say, you know, be heroes. We want to be heroes. We want to get there. We want to save your, you know, we want to save, we want to contain it to your bedroom. And, you know, we want to do that. We don't want the big black square on the ground. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's those opportunities to me. I, you know, I look at my friends that are out online and I want to, I want to give them all the tools, you know, and now their kids are coming in. we got friends that their kids are in our department. And I think now one day this guy's going to be a captain. I want him to be able to succeed, you know, the next time they have the next biggest wildfire that we get, right? Because it's going to happen again, Hopefully right? Hopefully a long time from now. We'll be gone. Yeah. <laughs> I also too. It's on the news. We'll yeah, listen yeah. to it on the news. But, yeah. you know, those guys, you know, whatever challenges that we had with this, I hope that, you know, our learning and our thinking, not just, you know, five, 10 years, but really the 30 year idea and the 40 years. So it's really, I, I think, you know, as she saw, definitely, you know, our, our partners, you know, working together. I've, I've worked with chief was my captain at one time, uh, but it's those experiences to me that really highlighted that, that kind of progression, like, 
okay, we're doing this, and then, well, why are we doing this? And then, wait a minute, we can change this. Uh, and that's been, for me, um, some of the big things. So, um, yeah. yeah, not as elegant as a chief, but uh, that's been my kind of, um, that those are yeah. the objectives. Well, I'd have to agree with that. And I think that the perception, like you mentioned, perspective, uh, you have all the perspective um, through those experiences to be able to articulate, um, you know, should you be pressed by a contractor, should you be pressed by a developer to be able to discuss uh, those things. And that's one of those things that I, I will say that it's helped me a lot too. And as you mentioned, making sure to be able to protect your, uh, you know, protect the firefighters that are on shift and, and, you know, make things a little bit easier for them, but also to be the hero. Uh, I like that expression to be the hero, to be able to save the property. So that way, hopefully we can have a long-term impact uh, for those residents. Uh, I agree 100%. I think that's a great idea. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, I think you guys are starting to freeze up on me. Uh, technology's great when it works, but <laughs> so um, let me check the Facebook page just to see. Uh, doesn't look like I have any questions. Uh, anything else you guys would like to add? No, that's pretty much it. Uh, you know, definitely, Tim, stay in touch. Uh, you know, and if you do make it out to Hawaii, let us know. We'll be glad to give you a tour of our department and, yeah. and, and uh, how we apply our codes over here, as well as, you know, maybe few nice beaches or something like that on the restaurant or two. But uh, anyway, uh, we appreciate the opportunity to talk, and, and if you need anything, let us know. I will. And you know what? Uh, I may see if it's in the ICC Region 1 budget. Maybe they'll fly me out there to see you guys so that way I can get firsthand, uh, a firsthand uh, look at all of these things that we just talked about. I don't know if it'll be in the budget, but uh, I'll at least present that in our next uh, you know, board meeting. <laughs> yeah, so tell them it's uh, totally required. Totally need to do it, right? All right, sounds good. All right, thanks, guys. I really appreciate your time. I hope you guys have a good rest of your day. Yeah, I'm happy. You too. All right.